0: Welcome to the DFD a podcast dedicated to all things, dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm super excited today. Um, corn silage season is coming up real fast here in Southwestern Ontario. And, uh, I know there's a lot of chatter around the countryside about it. You know, when's it going to be, when's it, when's the crop going to be ready? So I thought I'd, uh, invite kind of a famous guest on today. So our guest today is the global nutritional science manager, uh, with, uh, pioneer, uh, Bill Mahana. Bill's also a adjunct professor at Iowa state university. So Bill, do you want to say hi to the, to the, uh, listeners here today?
1: Hello. Good morning. Grew up in a dairy farm in upstate New York, um, went school back east at cornell and then went out to wisconsin to get a phd and uh taught for about seven eight years at a northern campus in, in wisconsin university of wisconsin river falls and then 34 years ago keith uh joined pioneer so um uh i'm an old guy is kind of a- <laughs> <laughs> i uh
0: i seen a picture of you back in your younger days with a pretty uh Thick black mustache. So, <laughs> yeah,
2: I've been trying to get that taken down from the internet for years. Uh,
1: I spent a summer in uh, Japan uh, when I was at River Falls. Uh, I always uh, had an interest in Japanese. In fact, I've been to Japan probably twenty times for Pioneer. Oh, nice! And Hokkaido is a really, I mean, it's just a vibrant uh, dairy area. If you were to fly into into uh Hokkaido you'd think you were in central sands of Wisconsin there's just dairies everywhere
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so yeah I I uh I shaved my beard and had this mustache when I was in Japan and I can't get rid of that picture so thanks for bringing that up <laughs> I really
0: appreciate that. you're, you're welcome there's a lot of other ones where you were just kind of you know in front of talking in front of crowds of corn fields and cows and things like that and then there's this one that kind of stood out and I thought it was pretty good but uh so where are you at now, well, you're in Iowa. Yeah,
1: Des Moines. Yep, Pioneers headquartered um, here in Des Moines, Iowa. Yep. You know, when I left Wisconsin, um, so I've been here for about 30 years. I'm a flat. I'm a flatlander now. Is you know, grew up in the hill country of uh, foothills of the Adirondack Mountains. You know, trying to farm three sides of every acre. It was so hilly. <laughs> now I'm in the flatlands.
0: Well, it's good that they measure acres in like length by width because when yes. you got hills you got a few more uh, you got a lot more ground in an acre there so exactly. what's the what's the biggest difference that you've seen uh kind of from leaving new york and going kind of into the midwest uh, as it pertains to kind of dairy farms
1: uh, not a whole not a whole lot of difference really when it comes to the dairy end of it um i think well when i was in wisconsin for all those years i think there was a I saw a big trend away from, you know, half corn silage, half alfalfa uh, as the forage portion of the diet um, migrating increasingly as the dairies got larger to more and more corn silage, like what we typically do back East. So I think that's probably, you know, and that's kind of fit into my niche because uh, I don't know a whole lot, but I do know a fair amount about corn silage and that's kind of, kind of yeah what they talk about around the world. So, you know, I remember when I first went to Wisconsin, um, you know, I remember them telling me, yeah, I don't know what they taught you at Cornell, but that's not how we get milk out of cows in Wisconsin. We (laughs) feed corn silage, half alfalfa silage and soybean meal. Um, But I can see how that's turned around now where, you know, it's not unusual to find dairies all over the Midwest, even as you go West, even as you go to California. I remember I first started going to California 30 years ago, they were You know everybody thought you couldn't feed more than 10 or 15 pounds of corn silage to a cow per day and and today you know i mean there's a lot of dairies that are up in that 60 to 70 pounds of wet corn silage per cow per day pretty commonly so
0: yeah i know and i i kind of see that as a trend here i guess uh where i'm based in in ontario is that we typically are seeing uh better corn silage crops like i think the agronomy and the weather is just better suited to growing corn And the yield's a lot more consistent and the product's more consistent coming out of the bunk. So I I think a lot of producers are kind of headed that way. And, you know, we're feeding as much as, you know, 13 kilos or um, I'm just trying to work that back to pounds, like 20, 28 to 30 pounds of dry matter of corn silage in some of these diets. So, and cows milking really well with good components on it. So yeah. And you think what that uh,
1: does in terms of growing microbial biomass, just had a discussion about, you know, protein sources and, the need for bypass protein or amino acid supplementation and all that. But, you know, I mean, you talk about efficiency, if we can, if we can grow a lot more microbial biomass and have that escape the rumen and get into the intestines as a perfect source of bypass protein in that it's, uh, you know, it, it's a great feed. I, 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 remember writing an article years ago, where I called it the TMR plant because it, you know, <laughs> starch in it, it's got the, uh, it's got fiber digestibility that exceeds corn, uh, alfalfa almost all the time. Now, you know, it's no secret alfalfa acres have been declining in North America for the past 30 years. Every year, there's less acres of alfalfa. Yeah. I think that, uh, some products like this Extra, kind of the BMR of alfalfa, if you will, um, I think can stem some of that, um, pretty unique product, uh, with, with really good fiber digestibility, but um, yeah, corn silage is, is king around the world. Even in Europe, um, you know, if you look at North America, there, only 8% of the corn acres in North America go to silage. Eight. That's it? That's it. But it's important, obviously, in key markets, um, you know, in uh, in, uh New York, where I'm from, 50% of the acres are corn silage. Wisconsin, you think of as being a big dairy state, but only 30% of the acres in Wisconsin go to corn silage. Really? Yeah, number one dairy state. Um, uh, 95% of the acres of corn in California go to silage. There's very little grain corn grown in California, except maybe a little bit of grain corn up on the Delta. But um, no, but you go to Europe, in Germany, 80% of the acres. Our, uh, our corn or corn silage. Russia's like 34, France is 54, Italy's like 60. So, you know, a lot of what we do, um, a lot of what I've been able to learn over the years, I mean, we think we know a lot about raising corn and corn silage in North America, and we do, but I'll tell you, our European colleagues, because it's such a big component of their diet, um, you know, kernel processing, all that kind of stuff, all that all started in Europe yeah there's technologies here so
0: it it still amazes me the difference between like the north american idea of how to get uh how to milk cows versus the european too like i i know maybe canada might be a little bit closer to the europe you know maybe a little lower leaders higher components than maybe the u.s but i i think i see the u.s trending towards higher components as well and maybe uh well i guess it's the best of both worlds high high uh high milk high components so
1: yep yep and you know there's certainly consolidation in the livestock industry in europe and in russia i have been been to Russia a number of times uh in the big dairies you know i mean it's just you know using corn's a good way to feed them and i and, and they want to know how we feed cows heck mm-hmm. I work with some of the biggest agro holdings in russia and And when I ask them who their consulting nutritionist is, I almost always know them because there's somebody I know here in the States. Um, So they, they want to feed cows the way we feed them, you know, for ease and, you know, going back to just the labor involved with harvesting grasses or alfalfa compared to corn, how much manure it can take back, all that sort of a thing. Now that's not highly erodible acres. We can just have corn on corn on corn on corn. We can't. I mean, there's a balance in all of this. And I think, some of the cereal silage, some of the, you know, double cropping, some of the things that I'm seeing happening all over, I think is really a positive trend as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something we're getting more into in Ontario is the double cropping, like throwing a triticale or a a rye and after, after silage just to keep some ground cover. And, and, you know, a year like this. So where I am in Ontario, um, I was a little nervous after second cut where we're going to get hay acres and then the taps opened up and it started to raining, but a lot of these farmers that did some triticale or some rye early in the spring had some really good feed to kind of help just bump inventory up and, and give you a little bit of a buffer to make it through the summer. So, but yeah. like I said, luckily enough, the tap turned on and uh, we've had a tremendous amount of rainfall uh, in most parts of Ontario and, and the parts that haven't got it have got adequate, you know, timely rain. So that's kind of what core needs, so. So I want to get into this a little bit. I know, uh, are you guys harvesting silage yet in Iowa or are you still in the same phase that we're at? In fact, we just
1: started cutting Monday um, at Iowa State, uh, the the dairy at Iowa State. um, We're were chopping our standard hybrid first because um, there was a little bit of uh, foliar disease in it. So maybe a little earlier than we would have liked to pull the trigger on that. um, But we're, you know, we know when we have foliar disease, fiber digestibility will drop like a rock. So we harvesting that first. Uh, we've got 250 acres of BMR at the University of Dairy this year, and it looks just super healthy, really green. So I just got a call from the farm manager. Should we uh, should we have them wait and and if if the custom cutter lives real close, so he, he said, yeah, we can back off and come back in another week. So that's what we're going to do. Plants. BMR is very healthy and it's only about a quarter milk line. So we we would, would like to see that closer to three quarter milk line before we pull the trigger on the BMR. So yeah, it really, um, yeah, we're, we're chopping.
0: Yeah, and we're probably, I'm going to say a week and a half to two weeks away. So we're just starting to dent here right now. So we don't quite have a milk line yet. And uh, I think we're trying to get lined up in the next week or 10 days or so to start chipping some samples just to see uh, where some of these producers are at. So is that where you kind of want to see your silage like in an ideal world? Is that three quarter milk line or do you like to start at say half or, and try and be three quarters towards the end of harvest or what, I guess in your mind, what's perfect?
1: Yeah, it, it depends how many acres we got to get across. And that's where a really pre-planning during planting, you know, how many days is gonna take you to plant? How many days is gonna take you to harvest? What maturities are you planting? Um, that's where next year at Iowa State, we're going to spend a lot more time upfront planning this than we did than what was done last year. Um, because we, we need to, we'd like to have the same level of starch in that whole bunker or pile or tower silo bag, whatever we're putting it in. And, um, you know, rather than having to deal with a lot of variability, but um, yeah, I think it depends on what the health of the plant is. So, um, you know, if the plant's healthy, I'd, I don't even waste time chipping. It, it means nothing to me because mm-hmm. um, what dries down a healthy plant is starch deposition. I can show you slides of droughted and hailed on corn that had absolutely no ear development. They look like broomsticks standing in the field. I mean, all the leaves are brown and, and half of them are gone. And when we chip those there's still 68 to 70% moisture. People don't realize how much moisture is retained in a stalk. Um, what dries down a healthy plant is the fact that you're increasing the starch deposition and the starch is very dry and it dries down the whole gamish. So if it's a healthy plant, we don't really waste a whole lot of time on, on burn down days and that kind of a thing. We just look at kernel milk line advancement. But if, um, if the plant is diseased in any way, you know, um insects, um, fungi whatever, um, then you know we'll look at both. We'll, we'll look at the dry matter as well as the uh, as well as the kernel milk line. And we can you know like in we've started a program here where we're using satellite imagery uh, and weather data and we can predict on our hybrids we can predict with fairly good accuracy when a hybrid's going to reach black layer. It's basically we can subtract, certain number of GDUs, maybe 150 GDUs off of that um, when we think it'll hit about, uh, you know, three quarter milk line. And for our bigger growers, what they really appreciated is maybe we didn't hit that, you know, nail it right on the day, but um, at least it gives us an idea of sequencing of various fields, especially we get into, you know, places where we're harvesting a lot of smaller fields, knowing that sequence for the cutters is, is valuable. So yeah, it's, it, it really depends on plant health.
0: Yeah. So you're like, as long as you're not, you're seeing a nice green, healthy plant, you just walk, watch milk line, which yeah, I, th- I think that's what's going to happen here in Ontario, other than some areas with heavy rainfall, um, because we are seeing a lot more yellowing in the plant, which I think is just kind of a denitrification uh, yeah. from uh, from the amount, because we had some torrential like three, four inches, and a couple yep. of them that kind of washed some nitrogen away. And I'm wondering just about, uh, about those fields. But if you're saying just focus on milk line, I mean, that's, that's what we're going to do where I think we're going to have to start at that, looking at for that half milk line and, and then really start to get excited about stuff. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, we may have to start a little early, sacrifice a little start. You know, the, one of the things that I've, I've spent quite a few years now trying to convince nutritionists is, um, we used to pull the trigger on corn silage way too early. You know, we were, we were harvesting at a third milk line, you know, so, um, you know, we were 30 to 32% dry matter. And I understand the notion was, well, Hey, it's a modified grass plant. When it gets more mature, we lose fiber digestibility and I can always add starch, but I can't add fiber digestibility. Well,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: proven in our silage zone manual, we have a chart that Dr. Fred Owens, who used to be on my team before he retired, looked at 215,000 some odd samples of corn silage that from Joe Lauer's work in Wisconsin and anything that was published in the Journal of Animal Science or Dairy Science, um, and all of our data. And what it showed is the plant was healthy, um, we did not have a loss of fiber digestibility. It stayed mm-hmm. flat in the corn plant. But once if the, the plant was diseased, then it really drops very rapidly. So, you know, we've really, I think we've convinced a lot of nutritionists if the plant's relatively healthy, you're not giving up fiber digestibility. What you are is gaining. You know, every day you can lay down between a half to a full percentage unit of starch every day the plant is in the field. Um, yeah, yeah as, as the milk line starts to decline. So you know, we just sometimes we just got to hold off a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I wonder. Uh, I don't think people will be wanting to buy ground corn this year.
1: Bingo. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. So. Exactly. It, and like, can you af- can you affect? fiber digestibility by chopping and processing like if you look at like a shredlage or uh or maybe even just manipulating chop length does that change that component of the plan or is it kind of set pre-harvest and and we have to deal with what we have to deal with
1: chop length keith or chop chop length are you talking
0: about chop length yeah chop length mostly
1: yeah i don't i don't think so. I mean, there's data that shows you can take a really low quality forage and by fine chopping it, you can improve the fiber digestibility. Um, but, you know, with Shredlage, I think the advantages of the Shredlage rolls, uh, who, the, who the, the only place you can really find Shredlage today is on a cloth. They own the patent. Uh, but there are a lot of other companies that have learned uh, the Shredlage secret, if you will, which is really just a differential between the two rolls of 50%. Um, yep. but the, um, you know, I, I think we, we did some data when Randy Shaver at Wisconsin, um, he's conducted three different studies on treadlage. Um, we actually hung bags at our livestock nutrition center and, and looked at fiber digestibility. We did not see any improvement in fiber digestibility through the shredding, all the, the, you know, the common thought was, well, we're shredding that stock, we're opening it more surface area, just like chopping it finer. We should have faster room and bug attachment. We should improve fiber digestibility. I, I don't think I don't think there's enough there to be significant in my in my opinion.
0: So do you think it's just an intake thing? Like they can just eat more of it, like they can pack more into that, that can. I don't think you get,
1: no, yeah. I don't think you get any improvement in intake with shredded. Okay. I think you get a significant improvement in intake when you're feeding a BMR versus a standard hybrid. Um, our terminology is we don't say conventional hybrid because that refers yeah. to traits that we I call it a standard hybrid. So BMR versus standard, and the standard yeah. have right. traits or not have traits. But yeah, I, I think I think um, I think cutting height, you know, raising the cutter the cutter bar, um, you know, how high we're chopping certainly can have an effect on fiber digestibility in some years but I don't think particle size makes that big of a difference. And typically what we're looking for is, you know, that 19 millimeter chop length or longer so that we create a good room and mat and we don't have to rely on our alfalfa or straw on the diet or anything else to get our enough effective fiber. So, you know, and that's where Shredledge came in. You know, you can go out to, some of the early work was out to 30 millimeters for chop length, but I think the sweet spot today for anybody using a Shredledge unit or, or one of the knockoffs that, that, similar to Shredledge is that that 24 to 26 millimeters about as long as I hear people going, but yeah. I, like 19 millimeters, uh, and, and we can get, you know, good kernel damage. Um, the chop height thing though is interesting. Um, so we did some really work with that. In fact, Greg Roth at Penn state, um, summarized 11 different studies going from seven inches to 20 inches. And I got the data up here, so if I can reference it here. Um, and a number of those studies were actually field studies that Pioneer conducted. Um, but going from seven inches to 20 inches, obviously you concentrate the starch. So they moved the starch. These are some older older studies, but they went from 30% to 32% starch. So they increased the starch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they improved the fiber digestibility from 50% to 54 and you'd almost say, well, wow, that looks like it's almost to the extent that we would see from BMR. The difference is you high chop it, you will improve the fiber digestibility, but there's still going to be the lignin in what's left. And it doesn't have the fragility of the cell wall that we see with BMR. So you're probably not going to see the response in increasing better intake with high chopping that you would with BMR. But it will improve fiber digestibility, give you more energy out of that corn silage. And what we've been saying, Keith, is, you know, you almost have to to chop some plants and chip or shred them up and send them to the lab and look what the fiber digestibility is. But we tend to see a bigger response from high chopping um, when it's been a wet growing season during the vegetative growth of the plant. So we're we're pretty confident that fiber digestibility is already set in that plant by the time pollination occurs. Yeah. Um, and if it's drier than normal during the early vegetative growth, plants will tend to be a little bit shorter, but the fiber digestibility will be higher. If plants are a little bit taller because they got a lot of moisture during that vegetative stage, fiber digestibility is going to be lower. We also see lower fiber digestibility almost all the time in irrigated corn. I'm not telling people to stop irrigating corn because it's a heck of a way to get more biomass and and, and be a hedge against the weather, but we know that irrigated corn is lower in fiber digestibility, and that's why we see a lot of the guys out west in irrigated conditions will do a lot of high chopping. Um, mm-hmm. Already got very tall plants, get a lot of biomass yield. So, in fact, they're looking at a study that uh, one of our dairy specialists, uh, um, kind of Ashley Napton's uh, version uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, Ashley's our dairy specialist in Ontario, but um, her counterpart in Wisconsin did a study year ago where. Uh, looking at, you know, kind of what Greg Gross summary data showed for improvement. He went three different dairies, high chopping about to that 20 inches. And one of the dairies, uh, one of the hybrids, no improvement in fiber digestibility. Another one had 11%. So it really depends kind of like on the soil conditions. If we get mm-hmm. soil conditions where it's sandy soil, we're probably going to, you know, be more, you know, we're not going to have the water accumulation of water holding capacity those kinds of soils are probably going to end up with a little higher fiber digestibility where if you got a heavy clay loam kind of soil, you know, you're going to hold more water and potentially, you know, if you get a fair amount of rain during that vegetative growth, you're probably going to suffer fiber digestibility. Really, it's increasingly us in the nutrition world need to be, you know, working working with our agronomists to really look at those plants and look at... In fact, really interesting study, Keith, one of our dairy specialists in Michigan, took eight random loads from a fairly uniform field, eight random loads coming in two years ago uh, as it was being chopped. And there was more range in fiber digestibility off of eight random loads than there is within the whole entire germplasm of corn. <laughs> that shows you that shows you the variability we have in the fields. Or so even me suggesting go out into the field, harvest a few plants, chip or shred them up and see what the fiber digestibility is. Well, you could move 50 feet away and have a completely different soil and have complete. And, you know, back to a practical thing, that's why facing a bunker or a pile helps us to kind of average that out through the day and cows getting more of an average feed stuff. But there's a lot of variability within fields uh, that, you know, we have to deal with.
0: Well, I know, uh, like even in the bunk face thing that you were mentioning is I had a producer that had a self-propelled TMR wagon with an instant NAR on it. So how they calibrate that is they go up to the bunk face and they take little, uh, bites out of it. And so I think they take 12 or 15 different bites out of the whole face and the variability on like, even just moisture was like three to 8% and that's just in their own bunk face. Yes. So imagine if you're doing, you know, some of these, uh, some of these drive over piles or, you know, you got a 60 foot face and 60 feet wide and 12 or 14 feet tall, like the variability there's incredible. And, yeah. and you don't really think about it until you go test it.
1: And variability also, Keith, in terms of processing.
0: Yeah. Is, uh, yeah.
1: Big deal. Uh, you know, a big deal. Are we, you know, are we getting the, and some of the big dairies I work with where we've got, you know, two or three self-propelled choppers working at the same time, you know, we get into situations where, you know, two of them might be set right, one maybe wasn't set right, or the roller mill was worn, or, you know, they opened the, you know, it was three millimeters instead of one, or the differential wasn't where it should be. I, I see that as being a big, big deal.
0: Yeah. So, what we're like, what are you looking for? Like, I know you guys have the the liter cup or half liter cup. Like, what are you looking for when you're assessing processing score on the kernels?
1: Yeah. So, I, I, I should have got a patent on a one liter cup, but I don't think you can get a patent <laughs> a cup because now I see every feed company and uh, chopper manufacturer has got their own processing cup. But uh, the your processing cup was the first one because actually just a little bit of bragging, maybe we developed the kernel processing scoring that's done in the labs. Okay. We developed here in our lab with a ROTAP instrument. And then we worked with Dave Mertens at the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center and Dave Taysom at Dairyland Labs in Arcadia, Wisconsin. And we round robin samples and we got a protocol set up to do it. So um, yeah, we, but obviously once you've got it in the pit to know that you didn't do a good job of processing. So we came up with this 32 ounce, one liter cup approach. I just fill it, you know, I don't try to pack it, slam as tight as I can. I just fill it with silage, dump it out, quickly spread it out. I pull out every half or whole kernel or a kernel has just got a nick on it. If the kernel pull it out and it kind of comes apart in my fingers, I don't count that, but if it's a half, it's a whole, or it's just a nick, I pull it out. I don't want to see more than two or three of those in a, in a liter cup. And if yeah. I, I want to talk to the custom cutter now, what that'll relate back to, we've, been, we've got done enough comparisons of the cup versus actually running the sample through our through the analysis that we, we developed and we gave the protocol to every forage lab. So I don't care what forage lab is running a kernel processing score, we gave them the protocol. Um, and what you'll find is that if you can give that under that two or three in that 32-ounce cup, um, you'll have that processing score in the high 60s to low 70s. And that's where we want to be. So yeah. yeah, really, it really is worth doing and and doing it, you know, multiple times throughout the day so we can monitor as it's coming to the, to the bunker, you know, to make sure that, you know, guys getting into different fields, different maturities of the kernel, different things going on. Um, it, it varies a lot. So we want to make sure we monitor. So we need to have a, SOP on the farm where somebody's tasked to safely take samples and just do that. Now, you'll hear some people say, well, yeah, you know, there's other methods. Um, You can take a five-gallon bucket and put corn silage in it and float off the fiber and and look to see the kernels at the bottom. When I hear that recommendation, I wonder if the people recommending that have ever been around a farm when we're filling silage. Like, I got time to have a five-gallon bucket to put silage in to float (laughs) off the... It just doesn't work and it won't get done. This using a a cup and just spreading it out quickly on the back of the pickup or whatever on the tailgate and looking at it quickly is, to me, the way to go. I know University of Wisconsin Ag Engineers have done some work where they actually recommend, you know, the floating and then taking a picture. They've got an app for the Android to be able to take a picture of the kernels and that. Man, we're in the middle of a heat of harvest, Man, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, I, I think that not, I think I, the cup, whoever you get the cup from, whether it's Klaus or it's uh, us or whoever you get the cup from, to me makes the most sense.
0: Yeah. And I know it's one thing I, I try to do proactively as much as I can. A lot of times it gets tough when you get a bunch of people chopping at once, but I carry a tub and a cup and stuff in my car, so I can just go up, grab a pile, check it out, check it out at the harvester, check it out at the at the bunk and and at least kind of have an idea where you're at. And like is there any disadvantage to having like zero uh half or whole kernels in there, or is that just kind of something that maybe the white rhinoceros you're trying to chase, you just can't can't quite get hold of.
1: So think of it like think of it what was high moisture corn, Keith. Okay. So basically Corn silage is grass with high moisture corn hooked onto it. Yeah. So, if you to a high moisture corn pile, and you saw a bunch of whole—you saw ten percent whole kernels in it. I don't think you'd be happy. So, no, no I, I think you know, and that's why, that's why, you know, ideally we would see no kernels. I mean, I see a lot with the, with the shredder unit or with the um, the newer just conventional standard roller mills that have a, you know, all the new machines are coming out with over 40%, most of them 50%. A lot of them can go up to 60% if we're doing snaplage differential on the roll. So all the newer choppers are ju- just doing a great job. And I see a lot of scores that are 75, 80% uh, for, kernel mm-hmm. score. Um, you know, there, there was some, there was some talk there for a while. We don't need to be so aggressive in our kernel processing um, because it's going to get better over time in, in, in the silo, and that's absolutely not true. Um, you need to do a good job up front, because um, we know that that pericarp was, Mother Nature put that yellow pericarp around corn to protect those starch granules so they'd be there as an energy source during germination. Mother Nature didn't design that plant, to, that kernel to be eaten by a cow, so, we know that the starch right underneath the pericarp is the most difficult for women bacteria to get to. So, you know, we don't want to rely on time in the silo because time in the silo is going to change the amount that's digested in the rumen versus the intestines. It's going to drift up over time, but it does, you know, it does not, per, you know, it doesn't make that pericarp any more soluble or remove it or help with the starch underneath there. We want to splay that kernel out as much as possible. So the rumen bacteria have access to those starch granules as the prolimenzeans the are being solubilized away. So you do get solubilization of the protein that surrounds the starch granules during the fermentation process, but your processing score will not improve over time in fermentation. It, it will not happen. If, if it does show like it does happen, it's probably an artifact of the method. Because, you know, what happens is that rotap method is we dry the sample, okay? And then it goes through a very aggressive machine that shakes it out. And I think what happens over time is if we soften up those kernels a little bit during fermentation, and then we dry them, and then we put it in this instrument that's going to shake the heck out of it, we may actually break apart some of those kernels a little bit. But that's not going to happen when you're just loading fresh silage into your TMR mixer. It's not Mm going to... So I think some of the early data that suggested that fermentation scores improved over time yeah, uh, in the silo, um, I think was an artifact of the method that we're using to measure um, processing score. So, I think you know, ideally, we don't want to see any kernels
0: that um, I pull out. And to that, like I've heard rumors, I guess that the the hybrid companies have. Been trying to breed tougher corn just because of the amount of times we have to handle that and I guess people get into the, the question of vitreous versus flowery and things like that like is there any truth to that or is that gobbledygook? Yeah,
1: I would suggest if you wanted a better definition of that back in November of 2019 Keith um, I recorded a uh, hour long video for Horge Dairyman uh, on selecting corn silage hybrids so if you guys go on YouTube, and you just type in Mahana and hordes, it'll come up. And I go into the slides and the data on this flowery, flowery germplasm versus flinty germplasm, all of that. It's, it's a lot of myth. Um, first of all, at silage maturity, we are harvesting corn silage at three-quarter milk line. We aren't even at black layer. We are nowhere near two weeks later to three weeks later when we harvest for grain corn. So that amount of hard starch, that vitreous starch that you mentioned, Keith, that starch does not exist in the kernel when we're harvesting for silage. That's laid down very late. And the other thing that happens is because of the fermentation process that I said over time does solualize away proteins. After that silage has been in the bunker for you know, you know, a month or so. I- hybrids come together. They're all digesting the same when it comes to the starch, if they were processed equally. So no, I mean, the the flowery versus flinty, and, and I know a lot about flowery versus flinty. First of all, in North America, we don't have flint corn. In Europe, where I spend a lot of time, that's what everybody in Europe, except for Pioneer, sells flint corn. We sell dent corn and some dent by flints. But yeah, yeah flinty corn is popcorn. Flinty corn is Indian corn. Um, we don't have that kind of corn in North America. So we have very little of that vitreous starch in anybody's hybrid from any company at silage maturity. Yes. When we let it go to combining maturity, there's certainly differences in, in hybrids and companies for the amount of that hard starch, because that's, we have hybrids that have different test weight. But yep. if, if you look at test weight. If you, you know, test weight at, at a kernel at silage maturity, you're not going to see any differences. So it's kind of a, it's just, it's marketing.
0: Yeah. And I guess I was kind of wondering that. And I thought I'd, you're the good person to ask to kind of clear that stuff up because you know way more about the corn than I could even think of. But
1: uh, that YouTube video will, can uh, address. I've got some really interesting slides that I show in that, that that people could look at too if they wanted to. It kind of shows, you know, what does really flint corn look like? Um, people talk about flinty, but there's very little flint in the background. Um, you know, with, with, in North America, it's all dent corn.
0: Um, just to kind of go back and kind of circle back a little bit on cut height. Like, is there a big yield difference between, you know, if you're cutting at say six inches or eight inches, 10, 12, yeah. 20. Yeah. Like, is that a consideration or
1: yeah, do you cut for quality? Certainly. Yeah, there is. In fact, um, on Greg Ross summary, um, and it's, it's interesting because it was pretty uniform across all the trials. For every four inches that you increase the cut heights, you tend to lose about a half a ton of silage adjusted to 30% dry matter per acre. Okay. So, but you got to realize what you've lost is the most indigestible portion of the plant. And what you've harvested is higher value because it's going to be higher in fiber digestibility and higher concentration of starch. So yeah, you, you can lose, you know, you, you chop something eight inches higher, you're going to lose about a ton of wet silage per acre. But again, if, you, uh, back if, if, you, if you're trying to improve fiber digestibility, that, that's possibly one way to get it. But again, there's a lot of variation um, in, in some fields, maybe how much rainfall they got, what the, what the soil texture is like, it's, it's going to be all over the board. I probably would never, I would never high chop, um, you know, I would probably never high chop in in a very dry growing environment. I would probably high chop via a tendency if it was wet early on to have a tendency more to high chop during those environments. And that's why a lot of, as I said, a lot of irrigated guys all all high chop. One thing to point out, if, if any droughty conditions, so we had a, in New York, I just talked to my mother yesterday on the phone. I mean, I know we And talking to our agronomists and pioneer folks, I know we got a lot of rain in New York. We're way ahead of normal. What did you guys have in Ontario this year, Keith? Oh,
0: I wouldn't know, but we're way ahead of normal. Like, I'm just thinking about where I am at home between, like, Canada today. So, like, the 1st of July to about the 3rd to 4th week of July at home, I had, like, 14 inches of rain. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and I know, like, we're kind of on the extreme. I know north of me, I'm kind of on the North Shore Lake Erie, kind of, You know directly north of Cleveland and if you go kind of north of me up into where more of the dairy kind of belt is through like here in Perth and Middlesex Oxford counties um, they got more moderate rainfall like I I wouldn't say they got those big dumpings but uh, yeah we were a little extreme like there's some luckily enough we're on some light ground that the ground sucked it up but I know I've never seen water laying in my backyard and we had water for about a week and a half the dog loved it but you can tell the cord <laughs> of the beans were suffering a little bit from it. So, yeah. And especially like, like if you look at edible, like our edible bean crops are, are kind of tough because they're not very, uh, they're not very uh, water tolerant. So, yeah. Well, I, and it, the, the kind
1: of, what I was thinking is some people recommend if it's, if it's droughty, um, we need high chop because we're worried about nitrates. Absolutely the wrong thing to recommend. When it's droughty, we need more feed than,
0: than we Yeah.
1: So even in droughty conditions, um, I would be high. Chop- I would be low chopping uh, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the data is very, very clear. The fermentation process will degrade the nitrate level in silages by 50% or more. Um, and so you don't need to worry about nitrate poisoning. I've been in this business a long time, never seen nitrate poisoning in a dairy herd. The only time I've ever seen nitrate issues is when we're grazing beef cattle on, on stalks. That's yeah cause a problem but you know you get such a dilution effect uh, first of all you're reducing it through the fermentation process and then by the time you dilute it down and put it in the diet uh, you're not going to have nitrate issues and we need that feed so generally I don't I don't believe in the recommendation we need to be high chopping if it was droughty because first of all the fiber digestible is going to be really good so let's take it as low as we can and then the nitrates are not going to be a problem after fermentation.
0: Well, I always kind of look at it like if you'd see the guy in the chopper saying, Oh, this corn's great. I'm eye level with my tassels. Get that cutter height up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get up to boot high, like knee high or whatever, like that, at least, and, yeah. and kind of dilute that. And I know, like most places here in Ontario, um, we've got a ton of uh, hay inventory, like alfalfa inventory, just because we did have some pretty, like a really good third cut and a really strong fourth cut. And uh, so I think the tendency, It might be easier to kind of talk guys into high chopping this year just you know put up some more higher quality feed and we can feed some more haylage with it and still you know try and feed a little bit less grain corn you know with it the way the price is right now i think any way that we can kind of keep the grain off the off the feed or keep the feed truck from coming in the laneway i guess it's yeah um, with corn on it so
1: yeah
0: um the other thing i wanted to just kind of touch on is you know we talked about uh chop length and processing considerations for conventional corn what about bmr
1: yeah i don't see anything different with bmr you know i still recommend you know same chop length basically and same processing and you know 19 millimeters and you know it's kind of the standard for us you've got a you know if you've got a shred legion or something go a little bit longer if you need it but you know it there's no standard chop length for anything you know theoretically the finer you chop it you know the better it'll pack in a in a pile or bunker and um you know can help with that but uh, it kind of depends on what is in the whole as you well know Keith. what's in the whole diet are we are we getting effective fiber from some longer cut grass that we know floats in the rumen or you know it, it more depends on what the whole tmr looks like where we're getting our effective fiber from um chopping it finer for smaller guys that maybe don't have a processor chopping it finer is going to nick more kernels at the cutter head so i you know if a smaller guy mm-hmm. older processor i'd chop it finer if he's getting enough scratch coming from other fiber sources in the diet but i don't really make any different recommendations for bmr
0: uh is there any advantage or disadvantage to cutting high with bmr you can actually improve the fiber digestibility because even
1: with bmr you're going to have the the most indigestible portion of the is going to be the lower portion so yeah there is. I don't see guys doing that very often. Um, you know, I, what, what's interesting with BMR is that we know that this growing environment has such an influence on fiber digestibility on a standard hybrid. Well, we know that the same thing will happen with BMR. So in a wet growing environment, BMR will not be as digestible as the same hybrid in a drier growing environment. Very good. Okay. If there's not a, it's the BMR is always going to be higher in the wetter environment. It's going to be higher, the highest one in the drier environment, but it's going to change from year to year due to how much moisture it got during the vegetative growth period. So that's really, really clear.
0: Yeah. Um, And I guess with BMR too, like what are some, maybe some of the advantages to growing it, maybe some of the disadvantages and have those changed over time?
1: Yeah, I think it has, uh, you know, with, Dow and DuPont coming together and, and all the different brands that we have out there, Pioneer and Brabant and, and different things, I think, you know, we are the only people breeding BMR corn. And so we are very, very focused. We have a dedicated breeders and stations really highly focused on BMR. Um, and I think the agronomics are improving and that's clear. It was even clear to our local people here in Iowa when, when we said, oh, we better cut the standard hybrid here first, because the BMR looks a heck of a lot healthier. Yeah, uh, we can let that wait. So yeah, and you know, the use of fungicides, is something, you know, you know, we're seeing that as almost a routine management practice. We know that fungicides, you know, wet growing year can help that, that ear leaf where most of the photosynthate is produced, um, can keep it healthy and we know it has a big advantage for, for grain corn. Um, But we also know it has an advantage for silage corn as well, because we can lay down more starch if that leaf is healthy, uh, preventing foliar disease. And, and also we know that uh, fungicides can widen that harvest window a little bit for us, keep that plant healthier. And we know that when that fiber, when that plant health goes down, fiber digestibility goes down. So, you know, BMR, especially with BMRs, um, the early recommendation was you've got to use a fungicide. Well, still it's kind of a common recommendation um, and maybe put it on your better ground. One of the things we know about BMR, Keith, is they don't handle drought tolerance. very. They don't handle drought real well. Um, lignin, the, yeah, obviously the lignin is lower in BMR. Um, lignin is really important in water transport in the corn plant. And so they oh, don't... Okay. Uh, drought as as well. So there's a little more risk there. It, it, if your listeners are interested, we've put together a very, um, really gone into the database and 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 you're going to hear from Pioneer Corteva a, a different tune than you might have heard about BMR in the past. We are not going to, as, as one of our companies now that's under our umbrella used to recommend BMR on a, on a lot of acres, um, we think it needs to be very judicious in how you use BMR. Um, it, it's very clear from the data, and I've got a two-page document willing to send to anybody if they want to get a hold of you. I'll send it to you.
0: Yeah, uh, that'd be great.
1: But um, the, the point is that uh, it's clear that the best place you can use BMR is in the transition cow diet.
0: It's really- <laughs> that's, that's why everybody's afraid of it here, though. Because they say it's too digestible. I don't. Oh,
1: no. I'm yeah. transition cow. I'm talking the last two to three weeks before calving. We're going to drive intake. So it's not right there. Milk, it's just transition. Well, and,
0: and in the fresh cow.
1: And in the fresh cow. That's the second place. So, yeah. Um, and what we're trying to do is drive intake and drive milk production to get that peak as high as we can. But Certainly one of the drawbacks of BMR today, we hope we can overcome this, but there's at least a 10%, maybe closer to a 15% yield drag. Mm -hmm. Why would you, and data out of Cornell, Bill Stone did some nice work in this area. Um, There's some work that was done out west. The U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center has done some work. Wisconsin's done some work. And if you look at all the studies, they show the same thing you can, if you put it in the transition cow diet and then about the first five to six weeks into the lactating diet, and then you take BMR out and feed a standard hybrid, milk production stays high. So, you've got that peak up there and cows will maintain that. And if you feed BMR after post-peak, all you're doing is they're eating more because that's what it does. It drives intake. They're eating more, but they're not producing any more milk than they would have on a standard hybrid. So, you're losing feed efficiency. So, if you're looking to kind of combine Driving intake and driving milk production peaks where it's important, um, and then where you're trying to, you know, not overfeed a cow so your, your feed efficiency numbers are where they should be. It's clear that you know you probably need about twenty to thirty percent of your acres in BMR and the rest of it in a higher yielding, less agronomically risky standard hybrid. Um, now the problem, Keith, is with the smaller guys. Um, you know, can I have two faces open? Well, I think if you use a Buchaner inoculant on silages, yeah, you can have two faces open even in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I, I don't think BMR is something, I mean, we do have some people, it's a, it's a decision between the grower and the nutritionist. I personally had a situation where a nutritionist in Colorado wanted, was recommending to his very large dairy in Colorado to plant everything to BMR and and. And I respect the nutritionist, but I stepped in and I talked to our local sales rep and talked to the dairyman. I said, you know, can you afford a 20% yield drag? Can you afford to have have to contract 20% more acres of silage? Because that's where you're going if you go with this route. I go, you know, let's plant enough BMR to a transition cow and the and high string, if you will, and, and then get higher yields with less less agronomic issues with a standard hybrid so that that's that's my take on it keith but again there's been a lot of we dug into the literature um one of our dairy specialists jim smith in wisconsin just did a phenomenal job and i mean we sourced master's theses that haven't been published uh on this topic And, and i think that's i think that's what we need to think about we wouldn't recommend the same racehorse grain hybrid on every acre for everybody no You know, and the same thing with BMR, it's, it's, it's got to be used intelligently.
0: Um, What about tank? Not, not tank mixing, but uh, mixing the planter. Like, is it, does it make sense? You know, you got a 12 row planter, you're going to plant three, four rows of BMR and just kind of mix it in the bunker. Do you lose the efficacy of it?
1: There are people that do that. And there's some growers I know in New York that have done that, um, if you talk to a well-known well-known agronomist like Ev Thomas from Minor Institute, he'll say absolutely not. Um, we don't re- generally recommend that. Um, you've diluted the fiber digestibility in half. And again, if I'm saying that it really has the advantage in transition and high-string diets, why would mm-hmm. I want half BMR in the whole diet for even the tail-under group or the low group? Yeah, I, I don't really want to do that. Um, some people say, well, it stands up better. There's no good data on that. In fact, we've got some studies that we're conducting in Italy this year to look at that. Um, We don't believe it does. Uh, And here's, this is just purely observational, no data behind it. But what we find is that when we look at BMR in plots, where they're surrounded by standard hybrids, and if we get a wind event, it almost looks like the BMR goes down easier almost like a Ventura effect of of pushing down through those BMR rows versus if you've got a whole field of BMR, it tends to sway a little bit more. So in general, and and then the maturity differences and everything else, it's not something we recommend commonly. There are people that do it, more power to them if they're successful with it, but it's not something we think really makes sense.
0: Yeah, I know. I think it was more of a recommendation maybe – 10, 12, 15 years ago, but it's amazing what we can learn in that time between studies and, you know, just producers growing it and, and their experiences and sharing with, you know, people like myself or people like you and, and kind of getting yeah. what they're seeing. So yeah. that's interesting. And the new BMRs um,
1: that are coming out that have the history of the founder of hybrid corn, which is Pioneer, <laughs> um, with a little better genetics uh, in the background, I think are going to stand a lot better even when there's stress and again, disease, disease and standability and all that is something that our breeders are working on very hard.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned something about Buckner eye back a little bit farther. So I just kind of want to go through a bit of inoculant, but I want to start with like packing and delivery and then kind of include that that more broad inoculant talk into that, because I think with corn silage coming up, we really have to, you know, get back to basics. We look at cut length, we look at processing, uh, packing would be, packing, covering, and inoculating would probably be the next three kind of top five things I'd be looking at with silage. Yep. So So what are you looking at for density? Like I know you look at the research, they say 16 pounds per cubic foot, of dry matter, is that enough or are we going higher? Should we shoot, be shooting for higher? What's spills thoughts yeah, on that?
1: You know, it depends. It depends on the moisture because moisture prevents air penetration. You know, we look at density as a proxy measurement uh, for porosity. So if you look at Brian Holmes's work, who's now retired egg uh, engineer from the University of Wisconsin, Brian Holmes did some fantastic work. Um, but in our Silage zone manual. We have a chart that shows what the density needs to be by the dry matter. That it's all okay. Um, so that that's really what it is. So if you've got wetter silage, you don't need to pack it as dense because the water will prevent porosity. Um, drier material needs to be packed better. So it, it varies. You know, we were the first people to ever use thermal sensitive infrared cameras to look at. I, I you know, I don't pay as much attention anymore to to densities, um, um, I know that I want to see a guy in a pack tractor that's not packing more than four to six inches as he's as he's feathering it up. If I can get that done and I've got, you know, I've got a decent-sized pack tractor and a push tractor for every self-propelled, I know that I'm probably going to get pretty good densities. And then we'll, you know, where the issue is guys going way over the top on, way over the top of the walls where they're not getting it packed right or they're not packing it next to the wall because they're worried about pushing out the wall or, you know, that's why taking a picture now with the, our infrared camera, we can tell where the density is low simply by, you know, looking at where we get the, the imaging, but yeah, the packing's important. Interesting, Keith, we're actually our agronomists now and our, some of our dairy specialists, we can actually fly our drones over piles and bunkers and give you a pretty good idea of inventory. We have some, uh algorithms to to use drones to look at inventory of, of bunkers and piles and interesting how we can use some of that technology that we're looking at the crop to actually look at inventory in the in the bunker I think one of the reasons density is important for your perspective you want to know how much feeds there
0: yeah yeah well and actually it's funny you mentioned that because I worked with a pioneer rep at one of our kind of mutual clients a beef and dairy producer and I uh, ended up doing the density. And then we gave the information to them. And then they flew the drone over top just yep. to see where they're at. And it's relatively accurate, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So scary accurate for a lot of math.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, pack density is, is extremely important. Putting plastic down the side of the wall um, doesn't need to be oxygen barrier from but putting plastic down the side of the wall in bunker silos is a very important thing to do because uh, it'll really prevent that side spoilage, uh, you, you mm-hmm. know on older older walls and that. Oxygen barrier film is a must. Has to be, you have to, have to use oxygen barrier film on the top and the good stuff. There's a lot of cheap stuff out there. There's a lot of people using paint or plastic, all kinds of other things. That is not oxygen barrier film. Yep. Usually you get what you pay for. And when you're some of these cheaper products, if you actually look at their permeability, if you send it off to like Michigan State University where they can run those kind of tests Uh, you'll see that the cheap stuff is letting oxygen through just like your normal ag plastic. So you got to be careful there. Um, Yeah. That, and then, you know, we, we obviously like, you know, if a guy's never had any heating in his stylage and he's feeding off a whole lot per day, he probably doesn't need a Buchner I inoculant either. Mm Buchner are for um, the reason Buchner is in products is because it inhibits yeast growth, and and yeast is really high on corn plants and on high moisture corn. You don't find any yeast hardly at all in alfalfa. That's why we don't recommend a Buchneri product for alfalfa. Now, if there's over twenty percent grass in the stand, there's a lot of yeast on grass, so you know that may require a Buchneri. But you know, if a guy, so let's say a beef producer that's feeding off a whole lot per day, I'm not sure they really need a Buchneri to stay ahead of that, but. You know, for a dairy guy that's more, you know, a little more particular about the consistency and palatability and, and not having heating in the feed bunk and that, um, I think a Buchner is essential. It's interesting because at Iowa State, they're going to be putting our 11C33 on their silage this year. And as much as anything, it, it was a, you know, it was a cost issue, but they are spending over 10 cents a cow a day to put a TMR saver into their TMR every day to keep silage cool in front of the cows. And, uh, you know, because, well, it was hundred degrees Fahrenheit here today in Iowa. Um, yeah.
0: We're both the same. Maybe about yeah, 95. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, high, uh, high humidity.
1: Yep. And a lot of heating goes on. Well, the interesting yep. thing about using a because if you're feeding at least, and we, we have a, We have a poster that we presented at dairy science meetings a couple of years ago. Um, If you use a Buchner inoculant and you're feeding at least, you know, 40 pounds of wet corn silage per cow per day, that Buchner inoculant will protect the whole TMR. So you need to spend money. I mean, so you're getting the advantage of reducing yeast loss, reducing the dry matter loss that that's causing, having a good fermentation. So, but again, there there are situations where a guy hasn't had any heating. He's feeding out a lot per day. You may not need to spend the extra money for a bookener eye, but most dairy guys are are using it.
0: Yeah, and I, I kind of <laughs> see that same trend here too.
1: Yeah, horse dairymen uh, have a. They do a continuing market survey every year of dairy farms, and um, the they ha- they ask questions about inoculants. what inoculant do you use and all that? And why do you use it? The number one reason for using inoculants was to prevent heating. Yeah. Then, Two, the number two was to prevent dry matter loss. And number three was to improve fiber digestibility. Although there's only one product that has any claims in Canada for improving fiber digestibility, but uh, you know, heating and the dry matter loss again is real important.
0: Well, I think the, between the heating and the dry matter loss will pay for itself. Like I know by the time you factor in what it costs you to, to chop and pack and put that silage up and with land prices, the way they are here in Ontario, uh, I don't think you'd see that maybe in the Midwest where you are. Maybe, maybe you are maybe you are getting more expensive land, but you know we're looking at twenty three to twenty five thousand dollars an acre in a lot of places. So you know that's eighteen nineteen thousand dollars an acre American um, yeah. when you convert it back to an American dollar. So like it's just we've got to do more with less or do more with the same. So well,
1: yeah, and the advantage you say about economics, I recently saw. A feed company write an article in the magazine talking about what does shrink cost you? And the person who wrote the article was one of my students when I taught at University of Wisconsin River Falls. So I sent him an email and said he must have been sleeping that day in class. But what he value corn silage on was what the a dry matter pound of corn silage is worth. And I said absolutely, you absolutely you're undervaluing shrink loss because. When you have shrink and corn silage, you only lose sugars and, and starch, mostly sugars. So you can't replace, and you, and you concentrate the fiber. So you can't replace what you lost with corn silage because that's half fiber. Yeah. You've got to replace your dry matter loss with an equal energy source. And so the way I have done it in our silage zone manual, I have a chart that shows, you know, if you had to replace your shrink loss at $5 a bushel corn, now you're valuing what that shrink, shrink loss is really worth. Yeah, go from 15% dry matter loss down to 10%, and I believe it's possible to get to that if you are doing it, like you said, Keith, a good job of packing um, and, 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 and covering that silage with oxygen barrier film and then using a buchner eye that protects the face almost like you had plastic on the face and, and you, your feet out is the way it should be. And you got to telehandler that's it's reaching high enough so that you don't have a big overhang and that's spoiling. And you do all those things, right. You can get down to that eight to 10% dry matter loss. you yeah. are still in that 15%. And, and, you know, I think if you start to figure out what it costs you to replace that boy, it's like over three bucks a ton. If you talk $5 a bushel corn.
0: Yeah. It's it. And I don't, I don't feel like producers see that necessarily because it's very hard to measure It is, and, and it's hard to, even for me myself, I'm, it's hard to get my head wrapped around things that I can't physically see the difference in, yeah. but, but you know, there's dry matter loss. Like when I walk up to a bunk and you look, you always see at the edges where it starts to dip down and especially this time you're in corn silage, like that sidewall keeps dropping, but the top stays kind of where it is. Like yeah. that's dry matter loss in there. That's, yep. you're losing that high value high value energy that's, you know, yeah. meant for, for producing milk or meat. So another
1: reason to put plastic down those walls.
0: Yeah. And I, I, it's amazing. Like you can pretty much go to producers and, and you can look at the bunks and, and just see plastic on the walls that w- is a major one. And I know producers always say, well, we don't want to hit it with the tractor and things like that. But if you do hit it with a tractor, it's such a little spot compared to the total surface exactly. area, that bunk, you know, you can exactly. deal with it and just, make sure that that make sure you're getting it pushed out in right and and getting it packed so you're not getting that close to it with the tractor but
1: especially your environment you know we've got snow and rain and everything so now we get coming down between the plastic and the bunker wall and then we've got guys here we actually put drainage tile down at the bottom so anything that snow or melt comes down hits the drainage tile and if the bunker is sloped right that, that just flows out of the bunker it's not you know sticking around so yeah i mean i i in fact, the first time I ever said it done was a friend of mine in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, did it with his corn silage. And I thought, man, that's a lot of work to go to. And boy, I became convinced of it. And we have a diagram in our book that shows that. And then I got a, a dairyman here in Iowa to do it with his high-moisture corn or snaplage And boy, I tell you, I just think it's really important to do.
0: So just to kind of the last point I have on corn, and it's kind of getting away from um, – what we're going to do with this year's crop, but it's thinking about next year's crop and with hybrid selection and things like that. Like, if you had the, if you had to go pick it for, and you likely do for the university farm. Like, what are you looking for for traits and things like that when you're looking at silage?
1: So again, that's a long discussion, but I would reference you to that YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> I spent an hour uh, with hordes going through that, but I think the biggest the summary would be that don't select for fiber digestibility because the growing environment is three times more influential on fiber digestibility than genetics. Um, And that's been reinforced by Fred Owens, who was part of my team, by Mike Van Amberg at Cornell. Um, People who claim that there's differences in fiber digestibility between standard hybrids, it just does not exist. It's very, very minimal. Um, further, a little, another myth is going around the seed industry right now is that if you, if you plant lower densities, um, you'll improve fiber digestibility and the I've seen that, of, yeah. And it's simply, I, I've got another document of all published work that shows that that is not true. Work from Bill Cox's lab at Cornell, um, uh, work from Wisconsin, our data, um, that the, you know, the thinking is the. The common sense that people are trying to say is, well, if when you plant it thicker, the stalk is thinner, so you got more of that outer rind to pith, and that's going kind to of lower fiber digestibility. Well, we do know when we plant when we plant corn from you know thirty thousand plants per acre to forty thousand plants per acre, we certainly narrow up the stalk. But several studies have been done recently uh, with multiple hybrids, even BMRs, that shows that yes, the stalk is. Uh, narrower, no influence on fiber digestibility. So, you know, you know, we do have ear flex hybrids that in challenging environments, low yield environments, you can plant lower populations and the ear will flex and you'll get more starch content. That's a different story. But to think that you don't want to push high populations because it's going to hurt fiber digestibility is simply not true. And again, there's university research that proves this again and again. The bottom line, if you're talking about a standard hybrid, plant the tallest grain hybrid you can find. The tallest grain hybrid you can find. Yep. The grain hybrid's probably going to have all the traits that you're ever going to need for silage. You don't need to worry as much about standability because we're taking it early. But we know that there's no difference in fiber digestibility. We know how important starch is to bite for bite energy in that in that uh, hybrid. And we know that we need the biomass yield. So we, I look at dry matter tonnage. And I look at starch content. Those are the two biggest drivers. Then I look at, you know, you know, is it adaptable to high populations? You know, look at, you know, leaf, look at some of the disease parameters and that um, but sitting down with your seed salesman and saying, Hey, what's working here for, for grain? You know, what's, what's really working here for grain and what's your tallest hybrid for grain? You know, Mm -hmm. idea that about a silage specific hybrid is nothing more than marketing nothing more than marketing you know back to the leafies and all that sort of thing there's no data to say that leafies out yield or the soft flowery endosperm all of that it's a lot of marketing going on if you actually plant them in a plot where they're no more than four or five rows apart from each other and you measure them you know if leafy was anything that was of value to select for Companies like Pioneer would have a leafy. Um, yep. There's just there's just no data to substantiate it. One of the very interesting things, and in, I mentioned earlier, that that ear leaf is the most important leaf on the corn plant. That's where most of the photosynthates produced. We looked at leafies 25 years ago because of the interest, just like we looked at multifolia to alfalfas. I don't know if you're old enough, Keith, to remember, there used to be multi-leaf alfalfa varieties out there.
0: What they realized is that… Predates me a little bit. Okay, well, again, I told you I was heard,
1: so… Uh, um but
0: experienced.
1: Um, yeah, but what, what we found with a multifoliate alfalfa is that five small leaves gave us no more protein than three big leaves.
0: Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's just surface area, right?
1: You know, you get five or six extra leaves above the ear, and if you're walking through a taking a 60 mile an hour drive by a cornfield with your plot check and saying, man, that that's going to really tonnage out, The problem is that those extra leaves above the ear, serve as a shading effect to the ear leaf where most of the photosynthesis being produced. So actually, if you look at corn plants today, they look more like pineapple plants. The reason being, we're trying to capture more solar radiation. Why would we want to put a bunch of little leaves above the top that act as a shading effect?
0: That's so- interesting. Is that why their yeah. ear set's higher? Like I've noticed over the years, like the ear set seems to be climbing and climbing and climbing on hybrids, like where it is yeah, relative I- to the ground. I think that has to do,
1: yeah. That and I'm not sure about that, Keith.
0: Yeah, that, okay. I'm
1: not sure about that, but I do know that the leaf structure allows for a more efficient plant, capture more solar radiation.
0: Yeah, uh, and that's free.
1: I think our breeders particularly like high le- uh, high ear placement. Uh, yep. That's something that breeders do not want to have.
0: Well, wow, that that gets so. into sustainability issues, right? Exactly so. for
1: for grain that we don't think about for silage, but dry matter yield. Um, starch content. So I've, I've said it many times, the best silage hybrid is a tall grain hybrid. And then if you're really going after fiber digestibility, look at a BMR, but, you know, plant it on 20 to 30% of your acres and understand it does not have the agronomic strength that a standard hybrid does. You're probably going to want to think about a fungicide, especially if it's a wetter year, We're going to have more foliar diseases, um, and you're going to have that yield drag. But there are some advantages to it to drive that intake. You know what's really interesting? In a cow, there's no improvement to fiber digestibility with BMR. So if you send it to the lab, and they put it in a test tube, and they analyze the fiber NDF before it went in the test tube, how much the rumen bacteria digested, and then they measure the NDF when it comes out, it looks like we have a four to five to six point improvement in fiber digestibility. That's because it's in a test tube. It can't go anywhere. Yep. It can go somewhere. It passes through the rumen. So Mike Allen's data, who's done a lot of good BMR work, shows that actually in the cow, because the transit time, the rumen retention time is so much shorter with BMR, it moves through the cow faster. So the whole advantage to BMR, we, we say improvement it improves NDF digestibility. Yeah, on paper. But how it acts in a cow, it leaves the rumen faster. So, the whole TMR is moving through the cow faster. That's why we lose feed efficiency in the tail unders with BMR. Really, what's happening is it's driving intake. That's the advantage to BMR.
0: Yeah, and if it drives intake, it drives uh, the creation of microbial protein, which the cow is most efficiently using for milk production.
1: Absolutely. And when do we want to drive intake? It's in the beginning of the lactation so we can get that peak as high as possible.
0: Yep. so
2: She doesn't have
1: to mobilize as much body fat so we can get her bread back. I mean, yeah, that's makes, when we use it.
0: Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. And, you know, the the calendar's coming up to September. What are your thoughts on cutting alfalfa in September for, say, a fourth or a fifth cut of the year?
1: Yeah, no problem. I mean, like in, in Wisconsin, we have a no cut zone. And it's absolutely. We
0: do it in Ontario too. Is what, what the, what you, it's what it's talked day about. are you guys using? I think it's like the 10th or 15th of September till. You know, the first or fifth of October somewhere in that kind of range,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. so actually i I had to look up in my silid zone manual. I told you earlier, I can't remember all this stuff, so there's a good workout of Quebec that even Dan Undersander and folks here in Wisconsin use uh, you know if you can accumulate five hundred gD GDDs going degree days, base forty one method, if you can accumulate five hundred GDDs from your last cutting to when the killing frost is then you're going to have good, good winter survival because you're going to have enough time for that plant to accumulate enough root reserves um, that it'll be healthy. The flip side of that is if you harvest it and you only got 200 growing degree days, and let's say in Ontario, we're getting, you know, 15 to 20 growing degree days, you know, u- units per day. Um, if you, if it's from the time you cut it till the killing frost is only like 200, you're still going to be okay for winter survival because that plant in its regrowth hasn't used enough of the carbohydrate root reserves that it's going to affect it. So there's that zone that you're saying, so yeah, there's no problem with, with cutting it. If But you said you already had pretty su- plenty of supply of alfalfa, So
2: yeah.
1: push it, you know, we do know that the fiber digestibility on that late cut stuff is going to be really high compared to second cut because we've got, lower solar radiation, we got cooler nights, we don't get as much lignification in the alfalfa plant. So we know it'll really be high in digestibility, but to your, and if there's a lot of grass in the stand, it probably makes sense to cut it if we, we've got quite a bit of growth because we don't want smothering of that corn, that alfalfa field over the winter too. So there's a, there's an effect there. If we get a whole lot of plant height, we probably, and you can always take it after the frost. You can yeah. always take it after the frost you know that's no problem whatsoever one interesting thing that most people don't know is that alfalfa in the fall lays down more five carbon sugars pentoses than hexoses a six carbon sugar so fall cut alfalfa is really going to be really digestible but the fermentation of it is more difficult because you've only got five carbon so you can't get two car- you can't get two three carbon lactic acids out of the fermentation <laughs>
2: Yeah, so a little okay.
1: bit harder to ferment the uh, the, and it's usually a little bit wetter too, which we don't like. We like drier, we like drier alfalfa silage. Um, but yeah, I, there's no problem with with taking it. The winter kill, we want to try to prevent that, and that's. I just had our alfalfa breeders ask me the other day, what's the number one thing we should be working on, and I said, well, I never want that alfalfa plant to die, you know. <laughs> I
2: mean, it's,
0: I, I think that goes back to agronomics, So like yeah, if you absolutely. got poorly drained soil, it's not gonna you get a higher yeah. chance of like root disease, which is gonna kill your alfalfa, right? So
2: Yep.
1: And and, and crazy guys running over alfalfa fields with snowmobiles. I mean that doesn't do it. It yeah. does it?
0: Yeah. Was there any final thoughts that you had, Bill, before we uh wrap this up? Uh not really. Um appreciate the time, Keith. I appreciate
1: the time. Didn't hopefully this didn't sound like a pioneer commercial, but um <laughs> we've got a We've got some really good dairy folks out there. I think you know Ashley Napton. She's a really great job up there. So, you know, in fact, I called Ashley to get a a feel for what your environment was like and how to speak Canadian. She
2: didn't
1: (laughs) didn't help me very much, but about about uh, find out.
0: It's roof, not rough. Yeah, all those little things. So, so. anyways,
1: yeah. So, (laughs) but um, if if anybody's got some. Other questions they want to follow up on, the, you can probably find me on the internet. It's just Mahana at pioneer.com. Happy to answer any questions somebody might have. But uh, what you're doing with this podcast is pretty cool. It's, I, I like oh, it.
0: Oh, thanks. No, and I appreciate you coming on. You know, this is one of the most exciting times of the year for me. Like, this is what's going to set up like our industry success throughout the winter. Like if you put up good forage, you're going to make good milk and we've only got, you know, a few window or a few days, a window of opportunity to get it done. Right. And so I think having the best information that we can possible in front of them before the producers hit the fields, you know, with some plannings, like some things you mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, I think we're just going to set, help set the producers up for success. And, um, my last thing too, is I wish everybody just to stay safe out there. I know, the fall is very very busy you know it seems to start this time of year with alfalfa you know a lot of fourth cut third and fourth cut coming off and it just doesn't seem like it stops till about november so i know producers can tend to get run down and and anytime that you get run down you start to get sloppy and i know uh, i just don't like hearing about farm accidents in the countryside but they happen every year so i just wish everybody a safe harvest thanks bill again and and uh, we we'll look forward to having a discussion with you in the future thank you Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trown Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.